Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is a remix episode. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player, and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. This is a remix episode. Illnesses. Diseases. As computer scientists, in our drive to succeed, whether we are in industry or in academia, we sometimes forget that we are still human beings and our bodies can suffer illnesses and diseases, sometimes minor and we recover quickly, and sometimes they're major illnesses. In this episode, we talk with two computer scientists who encountered major illnesses in their lives. First, Ricardo Baeza Yates suffered tuberculosis as a child. And second, Regina Barzilai was diagnosed with cancer when she was already a professor at MIT. Listen to how these two amazing human beings and amazing computer scientists not just navigated their adversities, but also used their experiences as a way of improving themselves, their education, and their research directions. Ricardo Baeza Yates, professor at Northeastern University in Silicon Valley, and also leader of multiple Yahoo labs across four continents. Ricardo grew up in Chile in South America, starting from the 1960s. But he's lived and worked on four continents, Europe, South America, Asia, and North America. Here's my conversation with Ricardo Baeza Yates. Also, when I was in, 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 in fifth grade, I think was because of my sister got it first at school, but the, the doctor didn't take care well of my case. Uh, I got uh, tuberculosis. Mm. So, so I had some shades in my lungs and I had to be at around six months in bed and two years treatment. So because of that, well, I couldn't go to school. And then I had to basically pass a grade by doing exams that were free taken in the Ministry of Education. Mm-hmm. So I was not a really a, a good student, but I had very good memory. Or maybe I, got, I was a good student because I passed these two years of basically fifth grade and I would say maybe sixth, sixth grade and seventh grade, I passed it as a free student. So I was not formally in a school for those two years because of this illness. And then I, I went to a high school and, and, and I was a student that was okay, but it was not really the top, but I started to have better grades on, on high school. Hmm. 
that is a lot of adversity very early on in your life. Do you feel like you had a supporting environment at home with your mother and your sisters or did you become independent very early on in life? Yes, I think I had a lot of support that my, my mother had to work from the beginning because of my father leaving. Something very important is that my grandfather was uh, had a, also like a depression and he taught me to read and write. I, I was his first grandchildren and and basically I think that marked me because uh, I, uh, before going to school I already knew how to read and write so that was an advantage and and he used a dictionary to teach me like mm -hmm. a classical what's called Larousse I don't know if it's a French dictionary that at the beginning is just a dictionary but the second part is more like a encyclopedia like a small one and I think I like that part because it had maps it had uh, photos of animals and so on so, for example, from that time, uh, geography started to be my hobby, and, and, and I'm a geography geek. So I, I know many things that most people don't know because because of my uh, grandfather. But sadly, uh, he died in an accident when I was nine years old. So that was another adversity in the sense that my grandmother, which was, I guess, the support of all the family at that time, my maternal grandmother, he, she had to work too like my mother, so and, and, and so basically uh, all the people that were supporting me until nine years old were more busy. But then a lot of uh, aunts came to the rescue because my mother had uh, four sisters, younger sisters, that mm -hmm. helped on that. For example, with my youngest aunt, we have only 11 years of difference. And then it's this like big family, more like, a, it's very interesting because it's more like, I would say, as, uh, this family that uh, when they gather they can gather 100 people uh, and I have like 33 cousins from my mother's side and so on. And, and of course, more and more grand nieces and nephews and so on. So so, it's, so it was tough, but at the same time, there was a, was a family that really had a lot of support. So, so uh, I have good memories about that. It really, it, it looks worse than, than, uh, than it is really. Of course, you had a little bit of a disadvantage because you were not able to go to school for a couple of years because of your illness. Would you say that your interest in science and math was very clear early on in life or did it just grow over time because you were good in a lot, lot of things, you were interested in a lot of things? I think it, 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 my interest because of my grandfather, who I mentioned, and also because, um, because when I was uh, uh, at school, I was in a small, very small English school, hmm. uh, and, the, and the director of the school died hmm. uh, just before I think I entered the school. And then uh, his wife, instead of going back to England because they were, they were both British, decided to, to, to stay at school and run the school of his, of his uh, husband. But she was not a teacher. Hmm. But then she wanted to be a teacher. And she said, what is the, the, I will teach a course and him, she invented the amazing course that was called general knowledge. Mm. So in every class, I had a completely different thing, like a mytho Greek mythology in one class, history in another class, and every, every class, every week was kind of opening the world. So, so I, I will say that because of my grandfather and, and, and this teacher, uh, this, this, uh, uh, Winifred, of course, her name. Winifred, um, 
I, I was more like a renaissance this time. So, so you, you, you wanted to know everything because I, every time I, I was having a new thing that was very interesting. So really, I liked everything. And because of my illness, I read a lot. So the only thing I could do in bed, uh, we didn't have enough money to have uh, more than one TV. So the TV was not in my ID. I couldn't have a TV. Only had a radio and books. So basically, I either had to listen to music and or reading, and so I, I started reading a lot. So I, I started to love science fiction. So maybe there comes the science with science fiction. So I read all of Asimov, all of Bradbury, all of uh, Ursula Le Guin, etc. So so all the the famous and, and luckily I uh, people brought me books to read, and, and uh, I read a lot of things, all the classics, on of of course like uh, pirates, either Salgari, for example. I don't know many people don't know Salgari, but he had this, uh, he never traveled, he was Italian, but he never traveled, but he invented this pilot in, in Indonesia and this other pilot in the Caribbean. And the stories were nice. And, and again, because I like maps, I was following the stories in the maps. That's a very interesting series of classes to study in school, kind of like a random walk through general knowledge with you. Well, it was amazing. I, I think I, 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 it should be, a, it should be a, a course everywhere because it's like a, it's like a random walk on interesting things, right? Yeah, yeah. And keeping, uh, I think, keeping the curiosity engaged is, I think, the the important thing there. Uh, exactly that. They 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 basically, uh, if I had all the potential to be a researcher, I think I started there because I was curious then from the start. Mm. And you need to be curious to be a researcher. Next voice is Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT. Regina grew up in Moldova or Moldavia, a nation in East Europe. Then she immigrated to Israel in 1990, did her bachelor's in Israel. Then she immigrated to the US in 1997 as a housewife, but then did her PhD in the US. Here's my conversation with Regina Barzilai. Regina Barzilai moved to the US in 1997 as a housewife, then got a PhD from Columbia and became a faculty at MIT in 2003. In 2014, she was shocked to learn that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. I asked her about her immediate reaction to this news and the long repercussions of that significant event on her life and on her career. Here's Regina. Uh, so moving forward in the timeline, I want to ask a little bit about your um, experience in the around 2014 when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. The diagnosis for any kind of cancer is usually a very slow-moving process with many tests over a long period of time. You usually never know, okay, you know, this is this is it. It's usually, okay, let's try the next test. Uh, how did you mentally react to that at that stage in your career where you're already tenured, you already have a research group, uh, and you already have a family, uh, but mentally, how did you react to that? So uh, this was like the biggest shock of my life because I was healthy. You know, the only time I was in the hospital is when I gave birth to my son. And, you know, I couldn't believe it because they always say it's one in eight, but you always think that you are the seventh one because I never had any cancer in my family. And 
you know, I did mammogram. They told me go to the mammogram. I did the mammogram, but you know, I never expected that we're going to hear something different. So I, I still remember, you know, I went to. So I did several mammograms, and then on the third year of doing me and doing mammograms, I remember I went to Mount Auburn. This is a hospital. It's funny because mm. Mount Auburn is both a hospital and the cemetery at Cambridge. Yes. So you need to qualify. <laughs> it's a hospital. They're close to each other. It was a hospital, so I went there. And uh, I remember they sort of told me, you know, um, you have something, let's just, just in case, go and do biopsy. And uh, I said, okay. And uh, I was really stressed. It was like tremendously stressful. And yeah. um, I, yeah, you, you know, I don't think that I actually ever seen anybody who, and, and it's not true, I've seen some people, but... I've seen some people, not very close people, but I've seen people, and uh, it was uh, it was very stressful. Then I did one biopsy. It was the end of April, and uh, I pretty much knew what will be fully my course of treatment by the end of July. Mm. So there was something mm. in the middle, but like by the end of July, I knew I'm going to have chemo, and I started my chemo. Uh, but mm. until then, I didn't know. So I. It was really bizarre times. It was on one hand, you know, I go through all these medical tests. I didn't say anything to my students because, you know, I sort of, I would tell them when I know what's going right. on, but I didn't know what's going on. And uh, one of my students won Best Paper Award in ACL during that mm. during the time. And, you know, and they're so mm. happy. And it's like, yeah. who cares? But I try to be nice and I mm. uh, um, showed my excitement and then you know and then you just go the, the hardest part is actually when you don't know because once you know you know you, you have like physical pains and uh, stuff, but at least the the course is clear and so at at any point did you think that um did you think that well um maybe i only have a few years left or was the course of the treatment clear to you uh, from the diagnosis point so you really don't know. You really don't know. Like at the moment that you hear the word cancer, you hear this is this is the end. And you know, you, you stop believing the doctor because you know what is your chance? Your chance is tiny. And all of a sudden they tell you you have it and say it's it's you know, ninety-nine percent that you're fine. What exactly does it mean? You know, I was at tiny percent. So you stop believing the numbers, you forget probability uh, as applied to you. And you always expect the worst. And um and, and, you know, like, first, it's like there are periods. There is a period when you try to understand what exactly do you have, because it takes a while. You need to do, you know, some lumpectomy, they analyze it, whatever. It takes right, a while. So right. you kind of leave to the next test, to the result of the next test. Then when that part is done, when, you know, the, the real serious chemo starts, you are really in a messed up state. I think in the following way, because you don't know what's to come on one hand. On the other hand, you know, usual life as you know, when you just go to work and you do your stuff and you go back, um, is sort of messed up. But the treatment in some ways kind of consuming that you, at the end, you just need mm. to do one day at a time. And that's what you do. You do one day at a time. Mm. There are many professionals who um, who are cancer survivors, and as you said earlier, there is no manual for how to deal with this. Are there things you learned through your experience, uh, things that you did right or things that you didn't do 
that you would recommend our listeners if they ever have to face such a situation? Mm, I don't think there is a universal advice because people deal with these situations uh, in a very different way. And uh, I think I was really, for better or for worse, you know, I was already, you know, in 43 uh, when I got it. And I feel, you know, this experience extremely matured me. And maybe, uh, you know, the listeners are much more mature than me at age 43. Um mm. It really changed my understanding and perception of the world. Um, and um, there is a period when you feel it very acutely. As again, time is a healer. When time goes by, you know, things change. But there are still, you know, a lot of parts that, you know, it, it just changes how you look at the rest, uh, at the rest of your life after, you know, after going through this experience. And, you know, and the, the part that, you know, you kind of discover there is this other world. Because when we are living in academia, you know, we are totally stressed. Or oh, is the paper getting in? Or oh, did I get this grant? Right. Or oh, did my student got this job? Or didn't get the job? Or whatever. This is really, really important. And um, and you need to be really serious about it, correct? Uh, to, to really push right. the boundaries and really think very hard about the problems. And in some ways, I think we're, I'm sort of saying, I would say I, I wouldn't say we, I would say I, infantile because you know you live in this kind of artificial world where a lot of real problems of real people are really never enter your life because you have a very organized life of course if there is a stress in papers and uh, and you know when you become a patient you all of a sudden see a different reality you go you know these treatments uh, like radiation and other they you know happens every day you see these people, you see a lot of sick people. You was like, how come I didn't know that these communities exist? You know, I, I was not aware, you know, the suffering and how yeah. it impacts people and how fragile we are. So this was my big eye opening when I went through this treatment. And it's funny because MIT and MGH, I just, you know, it's, it's a, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes walk, one subway stop away, but such yeah. a different world. Yeah, certainly your experience changed uh, the kinds of research problems that you work on, uh, you know, your your work with MIT Jamil Center and your other work that is about oncology. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that work that you've been doing recently? Yeah, so actually when I came back, um, I, I really kind of, it was rethinking, you know, you're coming back to the mm -hmm. world, your hair starts growing back. Um, but it takes much longer to actually become your normal self. And I started asking myself, you know, how come I am doing this stuff? And I, like one of the topics that I really like is working on undeciphered languages, which doesn't have any practical meaning whatsoever, yeah. but it's really, you know, intellectually extremely interesting task. And I, and I did some work. I really enjoy reading about it. And I was thinking, you know, what is my right to work on this when there are lots of people who you know, don't benefit from technology. And you discover how much technology doesn't enter this world when you're part of that world. Because you can't imagine even the simplest question that you want to ask, tell me what happened to the patients like me in this hospital? They can give you some general statistics. But if you want to ask, if women of this age with this particular, what happened? Even the information is electronic medical record, like what's the problem? People cannot do even that. So there are a lot of things that they cannot do that they should be doing. And many times you as a patient, you know, you say, oh, you can do A or you can do B. It's up to you to decide. But how can you decide if you don't have the information to make the decision, correct? Um, and at that point, when I came back, I felt, I, 
It's like I was not interested in NLP. You know, I still had a group and I... But my mind was like, what can I do to change it? It was like, I went through it. I have, I have a mandate. I have to change it. And then I started going around and around these places and asking different doctors, what can I do? And Mm. um, uh, typically, you know, being, you know, a professor, you kind of, you know, you're like a prima donna. You come, oh, oh, I'm, oh, thank you. Thank you so much that you want to work with me. Here yeah. I'm playing, knocking on all the doors and nobody cares. And it's like, we're doing yeah. great. Thank you very much. And it took me a while until I found, you know, what I can do um, to, to make, uh, you know, to what I felt to make a difference. Um, and uh, since then, I pretty much changed the whole direction of my research uh, because it's not only about like taking the tools that we develop and applying it to medical data. You really need to have absolutely new machine learning, um, you know, algorithms to solve the real problems, not just to do something. You can do something. There, there are a lot of problems that you can solve just by taking what is out there and applying it. But there are like millions of problems for which we don't have a good computational solutions. And, you know, and the longer I am in it, the more I see these big issues. It's very interesting. Changing a research area is always tough and changing one to a very applied research area is even tougher. And as you said, you went and knocked on many doors before you finally came to, I guess, a set of problems you wanted to work on and a set of people who would work with you. I guess the takeaway for me is to be persistent um, from your experience. No, I want to to correct you. The, mm-hmm. What I actually saw to myself, and that's why I never worked on clinical uh, NLP mm-hmm. or whatever, because I thought it's like apply thing. It's like people who cannot, you know, it, it was really obnoxious of me to think. So I said people who cannot really compete on the methods in NLP, they just take an existing tool in NLP and apply it to medical records and get uh-huh. some paper. This is not the case. Uh, like, okay, you can, you can do it and you can even get out something. But like, if you're thinking like in 2017, um, one of the topics that I started actually in, I started in 16, but in 17, there was a first paper, um, Tommy Akala and I, and our students at MIT, we started working on modeling small molecules. And, um, this area was really not part of kind of core machine learning. We know that the machine learning, there are methods, there is natural language processing, there is computer vision. There was even, you know, sequencing stuff. But modeling the molecules and their properties and other things, it wasn't there. I had to beg my students to work on it because they said, you know, it's mm-hmm. not really machine learning. And since then, this field uh, really grew. And there is a lot of new methods work. How do you represent correctly the molecules? Is, you know, graph convolution is the right way to go. Uh, we've seen, you know, the amazing uh, advancement that happened on the, you know, on the protein models. This is a very, very active field that really changes. Super exciting field. And uh, it's not, I mean, yeah, it has an application, but research itself in this field is actually very much methods driven. Um, and, you know, in this case, the reason I think, you know, I could jump into it mm, relatively easy because the field didn't really exist at the time. You know, this was a similarity yeah. with NLP, that when I ended NLP, it was at the moment of the transition. So it happened to be that in chemistry, uh, in chemistry slash you know, drug design with deep learning, this was a field uh, that was really on the earliest stages. 
And um, I actually, when I started working with it, I didn't even connect it to the drugs because I was in this exploratory stage. I said, I don't know what I want to do. And Professor Klaus Jensen, who is a professor in chemical engineering, approached me. He was introduced to me by my then department head, Silvio Michali, who is a... Uh, a Turing Award winner. He introduced me to him because I just needed some machine learning person on their DARPA grant uh, related to how to do retrosynthesis, which means to identify the path of generating molecule. And I thought, okay, why not? I will try. And when I started like talking and looking what is available, you know, Tommy, uh, who was my, who from the beginning worked with me and was a collaborator on the grant, we realized it's like really a humongous opportunity here. Um, in terms of algorithm and, and maybe doing it for a year or two, I look from my window and now I see, you know, from my window, I see Amgen, I see Novartis, I see Moderna from a window from MIT. And it's why wouldn't we connect it to actually drugs? You know, there was a connection. Because I was working on, on imaging and predicting cancer from, from mammograms and other things, but then I realized it's also a potential to do it for therapeutics. And that's how we, you know, kind of... Uh, pivoted this work into the therapeutic area. So, um, you know, when I'm looking at this path, it was kind of really no direct path. When I committed to work on, um, you know, on cancer, I thought cancer is, you know, NLP extraction from medical record. It's, you know, deep learning from images to predict, you know, progression of the disease or to predict who is going to get the disease. I didn't even connect this work. It took me two years to connect it, but now mm -hmm. this is kind of most of what I'm doing today. That's amazing that you've been able to convert that motivation into really, really useful research uh, program. If you liked this episode, then you can also listen to the full interviews with each of these amazing technologists in season two of our show. That's in episodes 24 through episode 35. Each interview features the origin story of the technologist, their educational path, their decision and thoughts on immigration, obstacles they faced along the way, and a discussion on their retrospectives and perspectives. Check it out. Again, that's episodes 24 through 35 in season two of our show. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle csimmigrant and hashtag csimmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. <laughs>